Now, you had to be living in a cave for these past 10 days to not see Governor Scott on TV at least once or twice or 49 times say something like this, leave when? Now. Leave now. Or else we're not going to be able to help you. And, and it was kind of an ominous warning, but, but a good warning. There was this idea that the storm was quickly approaching, that we're going to reach a point of there's no return, where if you kind of decide to hunker down in the keys for some strange reason, uh, once the storm hits, it's, it's too late. And in a lot of ways, that same theme courses its way through this passage this morning when it comes to Jesus and his opposition from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And let's just for a second trace the movements of Jesus in the Gospel of John to kind of get up to speed on on where we've been. There are three times in the Gospel of John where it records Jesus traveling to Jerusalem for a feast. You know, it is John's Gospel that gives us the clearest picture in terms of timeline of all the Gospels of Jesus' ministry, and it's from John that we, that we think that Jesus' public ministry was probably about three to three and a half years. The synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, covered that portion of Jesus' ministry when he was in Galilee in the northern part of Israel. John really focuses on these times that Jesus visits Jerusalem. And what's going on, what's interesting is that the first time Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and we've, we've talked about this before, he had just done his miracle in Cana. He had turned the water into wine. And it says that immediately after that, he went to Jerusalem where Jesus did not arrive winning friends and influencing people. He went straight to the temple, went straight to the court of the Gentiles on the Temple Mount and proceeded to drive out all the money changers. Remember, he was saying, you're making my, my father's house a house, not a house of worship, but a den of robbers. You're hindering people in their worship. And, and in doing this, he was disrupting and pointing his finger right at the heart of the corrupt leaders who were, who were leading the, the, the Jewish religion. And so, so this really ignited a sort of a slow burn, a controversy. Um, it Things got stirred up. Jesus was not, not a popular figure. This is all happening in his first visit. His third visit, John 18 and following, is when Jesus is actually crucified. This is when all of that animosity and opposition sort of comes to fruition, and these Jewish leaders succeed in killing Jesus. But between that first visit and that third visit, something pivotal happens. Something, something that takes Jesus beyond the point of no return when it comes to getting along with the Pharisees. And that thing is found here in chapter 5. It's Jesus' second visit. And it is by far the most pivotal of Jesus' interactions and visits with the Pharisees to this point because it sets a course for the rest of the gospel. You see, there was a lot of animosity and dislike towards Jesus because of of what he was saying against the leaders and against the corrupt um, uh, Judaic system at the time. But here at this second visit, we can almost see it that there is still time, if Jesus wants to, to walk this back. There's still time to make nice. There's still time 
to sort of assuage hurt feelings among the Jewish leaders and sort of implement some Rodney King theology. Like, let's all get along. Can't we do that? But in fact, as we find out in this text, Jesus does not walk this back. In fact, if we didn't know better, it seems like Jesus sort of sticks his finger right into the chest, metaphorically, of the Jewish leaders. And instead of running away from the storm, seems to run right into the middle of it. See, this was a conflict, seemingly, that Jesus is eager to instigate. And it's going to be a reminder for us, there are some things that are worth fighting for. There are some things that are not worth fighting for. And discerning the differences can, can be difficult sometimes. But when spiritual issues, when life and death soul issues are at stake, Jesus is going to provide a pattern for us. And in the, and in the, in the process, show us who he truly is. So we're going to be reading from, from John 5, 1 through 18. I'm going to invite you to stand as we read this. If you don't have a Bible, we'll flash the text up on the screen. It's a pretty familiar story from Scripture. If, you're, if you grew up going to Sunday school, the man who was, who was healed at the pool on the Sabbath. Now, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So this is his second visit. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Take the blinders off. Help us to see the extraordinary, eternity-changing claim that Jesus makes about himself in this passage. Lord, help us not just to recognize it intellectually, but Lord, may this truth be written upon our hearts. May it, may it mold us, shape us, change the way we think, change the way we parent, change the way 
we interact with our spouse, change the way we work. Lord, may it be a truth that you write upon our hearts. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You may take your seats. Recalling this, this whole series, Believe, because that is, that is John's chief goal. He tells us in John 20, 21, 20, 31, that I'm writing these things to you 60 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. I'm writing these things to you, Christians, so that you might believe in the Son of the living God. Now, you know, what's interesting about, about our culture is that we really have no problem with this idea of faith or belief. In fact, faith and belief can be highly valued just as long as you are sincere and heartfelt about what it is that you believe. In fact, it doesn't really matter what you believe. See, that's not the way, though, John in his gospel talk about belief. See, John, for John, it's not just about whether you are sincere about what it is that you have a conviction about. What's important for John is, is it actually true? Is it, does it have the authority of God and his word behind it? And it's, it's, it's really politically incorrect to say so, but John tells us over and over again, not all belief is created equal. Hey, there, 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 are, there are some things, depending on what the belief is in, that don't measure up. For John, it's all about the object of our belief. And so, so for John to call us into a living faith with this man, Jesus Christ, who claims to be the Son of God, equal to God, for John, it's not simply good enough to say, if you believe it for you, that's great. No, 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 no. He's really intent on, on, on showing us who exactly this person is. Who is this God-man? In verse 18, look, look at verse 18. It's the central, pivotal verse in this text. And John wants to leave absolutely no doubt about who Jesus is claiming to be. Let me read this verse 18 again. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, meaning Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That is not a claim that you can dismiss. That is not, that is not a claim that you can simply say, well, Pastor Paul, that's your belief, but my belief happens to be something different. No, no, John doesn't leave room to equivocate here. Jesus is, is making an, an eternity life-shaping claim about himself that, in fact, he is Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is no less than God himself. That is what John wants us to wrestle with this morning. And there, there are four, four ways, I think, or four arenas where John is going to demonstrate or show us that, in fact, Jesus is Lord. Okay, four, four arenas, and they all start with S, and that was so kind of John to do that for us. And we're going we're gonna to take these in, in pairs, okay? Soma, soul, those are the first two. Scripture, Sabbath. Sounds like a spy movie, okay? Soma, soul, Scripture, Sabbath. Soma, of course... We had to work a little bit at that one is the Greek word for body. 
And that's why I went to seminary. It was precise to be able to tell you something like that that you could find on Google. Except I paid $30,000 for it. Anyway, that, enough of that. Soma and Soul. You know, it's hard to believe that FSU's first home game is next Saturday. Um, it's, the, it's the first one with all the hurricane confusion and cancellations and rescheduling. And I think back to, to some, of the, some of the greatest home victories in Seminole Nation. When, when Susan and I first got here in 1996, it was our, our first football season in Tallahassee. And we got to the end of the season, and it was the last game in Doak Campbell between number one Florida Gators, number two Florida State Seminoles. And even though it was one and two, Florida, the Florida Gators were an overwhelming favorite in that game. In fact, let me just see a show of hands. How many people were here at that game? Okay, good. Wow. Okay, some of you raised your hand that I know weren't even born, but that's okay. All right, that's okay. And you know, there is a big difference in those who were at the game versus those like me who watched the game, right, on TV. Because when you watch a game on TV, it's sort of mediated through the screen. Like your, your, your viewing experience begins at 3 o'clock and ends around 7. But for those of you who were at that game, and I've talked to some of you, it's something you'll never forget. Because you arrive four or five hours ahead of time and you're tailgating. And you're getting into it with the Gator fans. And you're going to the game. And you're watching all the sacks of, 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 the, of the Florida quarterback. And you're all the nip and tuck and back and forth. And you most certainly remember the conclusion because what happens at the end of that game? Not only does Florida State win, but Florida State rushes the field and tears down the goalposts. I think it's the last time goalposts were torn down in Doak Campbell. Is that right, Josh? Josh doesn't know, but he should know. Okay. But nonetheless... You remember, it's indelibly written on it because you were an eyewitness. Now, let me say something. When you read this passage this morning, everything about it screams authenticity. John speaks not as a distant observer who's heard from a friend of a friend of a friend about something that Jesus did that gets embellished over time. No, no, no. John speaks as a first century citizen of Jerusalem, person who was there when it happened. In other words, John is speaking as someone who rushed the field, right? Just look at the text. I just want to point out a couple of things. This is just amazing. See, John's writing in Greek, but that's not the language everybody spoke. Everybody spoke Aramaic. And so John is so familiar with, with the language of the day, with the culture of the day, with the city of the day, he kind of knows the, the Aramaic names of the watering holes. And he goes, and this one is called Bethesda. It literally means pool of mercy. And John knew that this was the place where when people um, were coming to sacrifice their offerings at the temple, they had to go through this ritual cleansing. So they would go to this pool and they would be washed and and taken care of, and then ushered into um, the northern gate of the temple, never to be seen again, right? Okay, so, that, so people brought their animals there to clean for sacrifice, and it was kind of like a community hub. It was, it was made up of five pillars, John tells us, in this colonnade, and people would gather there, and, and they would gather, they'd bring their animals, they'd all be milling around, there's probably hundreds of people. John knows this because he's, he was there, he's been there, and in fact, Archaeology shows us this, that this to be the case. 
that excavations in Jerusalem show us, in fact, there was this very place, and it, it's, it's, it's amazing. And guys, as Christians, we don't need to be afraid of history. We don't need to be afraid of science. We believe science, history, only validate, if correctly interpreted, correctly validate the claims of Scripture. I say all this to say, just remember, these are not myths. These are not fairy tales. These are written and accounted for from a first-hand experience so that you and I would believe, verse 18, that Jesus Christ, Son of God, equal with God. Look at verse 3. It says a multitude of folks gathered there. And, And the reason a multitude would gather there, not only were they bringing their animals to be cleaned and washed, a large number of disabled people would come. You see, there was, there was a natural spring that sort of fed this pool. And tradition tells us that there was a, a sort of a myth or a superstition attached to this spring. People believed that the spring had healing magical powers. Not magical, they, they, they were supernatural from God. And that if you were blind or lame or, or had, another, had another disease or sickness like this man in this text, that, that on occasion these waters would bubble up. And people believed that it was an angel that was coming and stirring up the waters. And tradition had it, you know, first one in is a rotten egg, you know, last one is a rotten egg. Okay, the first one in gets healed. Okay, that was the tradition. And, and so you can imagine all these people from all walks of life who've been sick for so long, their caregivers brought them there. They're all stationed around this spring, waiting, waiting, waiting for this water to be, to be stirred up. And so you can imagine what a place this was. I mean, you've got animals and people and disease and crying and wailing and moaning. And, and say all that to say that this was not a place you just happened by. This was not a place that if you were strolling along to the fruit market or the vegetable market, that you would pass this place. No, no, no. The only reason that you would go to this place is to go to this place. So this is no accident for what Jesus is doing here. Everything about this text, for Oaks, is intentional by Jesus from start to finish. That's really important to understand. Okay? Jesus, Jesus is kind of sticking his finger right into it, and we're going to see this unfold. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Jesus learned that this man who had been there was an invalid for 38 years. Now, this word Jesus discovered or Jesus knew is the same idea that we find in John chapter 4 when Jesus confronts the woman at the well and knows that she's had five husbands and the man she's living with right now isn't her husband. That's the same way that Jesus knows about this man being an invalid for 38 years. John's trying to, again, press us, press something upon us. The first thing is that Jesus is Lord over the body. Jesus is Lord over our our soma. And he asked this man an interesting question. It's kind of a strange question, to be honest. He asked him, do you want to be healed? Well, Jesus, let me think about that a minute. Do I want to be healed? I mean, it's like saying, you know, Pastor Paul, would you like to grow some hair? Okay, sure, but I'd rather have cable TV than Rogaine. Okay, so that, that, we made that choice a long time ago. And interestingly, 
it's an odd question by Jesus, but it's an even odder answer by the men because he doesn't even answer the question. His, his, his whole response is to say, there's no one here to move me. And there's this, I think, this idea that John's giving us a glimpse of the psychology of this guy, that there's a sense of, there's a sense of hopelessness, of resignation. He's been an invalid 38 years. They've been hauling him down to this pool for 38 years, and nothing's happened. Nothing has changed. He's looking at things from a purely human perspective. You might could say this man is obtuse to spiritual realities. In other words, God, what are you teaching me through this? God, how do you want me to trust you more through it? God, how might you display your power through my weakness? There's not a lot of spiritual self-awareness here. In other words, this was a man who was thinking about his condition, thinking about his illness, independent of God. Guys, there's, there, there, there's something in this, and we're going to keep circling around to this theme today. That when God sort of turns our life upside down, he always has a purpose of sanctification, holiness, transforming us, teaching us something about him and about ourselves. You know, Pastor Josh mentioned this during the worship time, but in a hurricane, isn't it so easy to focus on the here and now and what you can see, taste, and touch? Honey, go get the generator. Go pick up the water. Did you see that ridiculous picture of the person with water on Twitter that she had like, like 50 cases of water? And I hope that woman doesn't have power. Anyway, they're not here. Never mind. We're just so intent on, I've got to feed my family, keep them safe, go here, go there. And we, it's easy, and it, I, I found it to be this way this week. I found it very hard to get spiritually motivated because there's so much of the here and now pressing in. And Jesus is wanting, in whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever sickness, whatever despair, whatever, whatever heartache, whatever conflict, to do a work of grace. But Jesus, let's go back to the text, is gracious. He's gracious to this man. Just kind of ignores what he says in verse 8. just says, take up your mat at, and walk. And it tells us, John tells us, it happened at once. That's John's way of saying there's no sleight of hand. Um, there, 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 there's, there's no hocus pocus. Okay, there, there's, there, this, is no, this is no magician's um, trick on the street corner. This was just like the passage from two weeks ago where the official came and said, my child is dying, Jesus. And Jesus says, because of your belief, you are healed. Jesus is speaking and molecules, DNA, the body is responding. And it's so obvious that this man immediately, it says, immediately gets up and takes his mat and walks. And by the way, let me just say this. We still believe here at Four Oaks that God can do things like this. We believe that God is still Lord of the body. We believe in the ongoing active ministry of the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit is active right now, 
in taking these words from his word and applying them to your heart. We believe he's active in our, in our prayer times. We believe he's active in our leadership meetings, in our community groups. And we believe that he's active in our bodies. You know, James tells us when any of you are sick to, to call the elders of the church, lay hands on that person, pray for them, pray for their healing. And he goes, we have seen, we've seen that happen here at Four Oaks. We've seen people miraculously healed. We've seen people, and you've heard our testimony of, of Aaron Petcher, where there's a dire diagnosis, prognosis of, of cancer and what it's going to do. And we just see that God has the power to take it away. God can do that. And that's an important thing John wants us to remember. For, it's not the only thing or the most important thing, but, but, but it's a crucial thing. Jesus is Lord of the body. Yet, yet, you knew that was coming, right? We also have to acknowledge that many people are not healed. In fact, I might venture to say many more are not than are. And that would be consistent with this passage. Because do you realize that there's hundreds of people milling around at this pool? And Jesus goes up to how many? One. He says, take up your mat and walk. And what does it tell us in verse 13? What did Jesus do immediately after? Did he set up the receiving line, the healing line? Did he heal every person? No, he said he left immediately. He didn't want to generate a frenzy. Because what he was after in that moment was bigger than this man's healing. Because I, I think all of us can resonate with that. There's probably something for all of us that we are asking God to heal. Some of you, it is a physical body. Some of you, it is a, it is a marriage. It's a parent-child relationship. It's a, it's, a, it's a financial crisis. It's something that has shaken your world to the core. And Jesus, by the way, wants us to pray for those things. Those are important. We're going to have a real body in heaven. We're, we're, the body is very important to the Lord, but there's something that's even more important to him in this life, and that's this. That is your soul. It is your soul. See, if this physical healing was sufficient, then Jesus would have let this man go on his way. But look back in the text and look what Jesus does. It says in verse 13, it says, verse four, I'm sorry, verse 14. It said, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. In other words, this was not Jesus was happening to be moseying by and happened to see this man. That's <laughs> not, not the text. Because literally, he sought him out. Because inasmuch as Jesus healed his body, he had a, he had a more important mission. And that was to heal this man's soul. He wanted to do a work of grace in his soul through this work in his body. And a number of years ago, um, I visited a man in the hospital who had been in a motorcycle accident. And um, being really pastorally sensitive and everything, one of the first things I asked him is, what is God teaching you during this time? Don't want to do it like that again. And I remember he said, not to ride motorcycles, okay? So again, no one to take me to the water, right? Several years later, though, he, he approached me and he said, you know, Pastor Paul, when, when you visited me, I, I just I didn't want to hear it then. 
I just didn't want to hear it. But since then, as I've reflected, I've realized God was trying to shape me. God was trying to do something in me. It was hard to see. It is hard to see, guys, because of our pride, our self-sufficiency, our, our desire for comfort, our desire for safety, that, but that God has a higher priority than simply fixing whatever is wrong in our lives. Jackie Hill Perry says this, we get confused when suffering comes when we think God is more committed to our comfort than he is to our sanctification. Because when I, when I reflect on, and maybe the older I get, the more reflective I, I get, maybe you can identify with that. When you think about midlife crises or pastors who've been faithful and sort of go off the deep end in, hered- in, in heresy and false teaching or people who sort of abandon their families to go pursue an alternative life, what is at the heart of that? What is at the heart of that? See, I think at the heart of that is a misunderstanding of what's most important to God. See, what's most important to God is not merely fixing whatever is going on in our lives and in our bodies. It's doing a work of grace in our soul. I think that's what John is wanting to impress upon us here. When when, when Jesus tells him, by the way, stop sinning so that nothing worse may happen to you. Okay, we've got to be really careful we don't say, we don't try to connect individual sins to things that God does in our life as if God is punishing us. And that's not the point of this text. In fact, there's other places in Scripture where it's very clear that Jesus says things like, they say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And what does Jesus say? Neither. It's for the glory of God that this man has been created as he is. Jesus This tower of Siloam fell on these people, Luke tells us. Eleven died. Who sinned? He said, "Ah, you're asking the wrong question. You too need to repent. You too need to repent. See, I think that's his his message to this man. That God had had done this work of grace to bring him to God and he was not listening. Folks, what? Work of grace is God wanting to do in the midst of your suffering in this season in your life. That's his, that's his highest priority for you. So Jesus is Lord of the body and the soul. Okay, secondly, then we'll be done. Jesus is Lord of the scriptures and the Sabbath. Now, I have to admit, and you, you probably agree, if we stop this sermon right now, and some of you are thinking, that sounds like a great idea, Pastor Paul. Stop this sermon right now. This will be a great message, right? This, this passage preaches. It's, I mean, it's just all tidied up with a nice little, little bow, you know? I mean, it's like if, if Tennessee could have ended the game last night at the end of regulation, okay? It was going so well, all right? No, never mind. Um, going so well here. Until verse 9, <laughs> I mean, you just got to hand it to Jesus. Talk about being unpredictable. Verse 9, let's read what it says. Now that day was the Sabbath. Oh, way to go, Jesus. <laughs> okay. See, the Sabbath is no secondary thing in Judaism. Sabbath was one of the central tenets of the whole system. 
It was the fourth commandment. It was so important that the Jews, Jewish leaders made 39 different variations of things that people could and could not do on the Sabbath. They had taken a very simple concept from the fourth commandment, which we affirm, work sixth, rest, and Sabbath one, and they had turned it into a whole system of control, of do this and don't do that. But, but, but even worse, it became a litmus test of authentic spirituality. It was, if you were not abiding by the Sabbath in these particular ways, then clearly your relationship with God was not authentic. So, so people, you better not mess with the Sabbath. Now, do you think Jesus knew this? Do you think Jesus could have, couldn't he have found a way to heal on another day just to avoid the offense? Aren't you like sometimes like Jesus, just one time, do you have to go there? Do you, do you really have to go there? But he goes there. And the reason why, and I'm thankful he does, is because nothing less than the gospel, nothing less than biblical faith is at stake. Because Jesus is wanting to press upon them. Leaders, four oaks, who's your authority? Who do you submit to? Who makes the rules for your life? Because you can say, I'm worshiping God. But if something else other than God and his word is shaping your mind, your decisions, you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping yourself. I'm worshiping myself. See, the Jewish leaders were messing with God's word because there was nothing, please hear me, there was nothing biblical about what they were affirming about the Sabbath. They were going way, way, way beyond the, the, the bounds of Scripture. They, they, they were twisting Scripture as a means of control and establishing and keeping their power. Isn't it interesting? They don't care one thing about this man. They don't ask him about his healing. Brother, you were paralyzed 38 years. Look at you. Brother, what is God doing in your life right now? How about even a therapeutic, how do you feel? Anything. But as Jesus says in other parts of, of the Gospels, they're, they're creating sons of hell. They're condemning people to hell. In fact, this man is so, fe- so fears the leaders that, that he totally throws Jesus under the bus. You notice that? Who is this man? I don't know. Finds out later it's Jesus. He goes tells them, it's Jesus See, th- th- this, is a, this is a corrupt system that bases people's acceptance before God on their merit, on what they do. And even if you kept the Sabbath great today, well, you don't get too comfortable in that because if you've got to keep it perfectly tomorrow or your soul is in peril. And Jesus has come. Jesus has instigated this fight. Jesus has, has picked this fight because he wants to put a stake right into the middle, right into the heart of that false religion. You see, nothing less than the biblical gospel is at stake because Jesus is Lord of the Scripture. But Jesus is also Lord of the Sabbath. And I think this is, this is his, his claim of lordship in this way, I think, is, is, is the turning point in this whole text. Look at verse 17. Jesus says a pretty amazing thing. Jesus answered them, 
My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, now, now what does that mean? My father is working now, and I, and, and, and I am working. It was, it was a significant statement. What does it mean? Let me ask you a question. What, what, what was Jesus by trade? He was what? A carpenter. And who did he learn his carpentry from? His father. He was an apprentice. This is apprentice kind of language. My father is a carpenter, and now I'm a carpenter. It's like seeing those Morgan & Morgan uh, TV commercials, right? I, I knew that would always get a chuckle. And I saw there was like eight people on the screen, then I realized the last name of everyone is what? Morgan, okay. Sounds really scary, okay. Anyway, that's what Jesus is playing on that language. And, 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 he, and, and stick with me just for a second. God worked for six days, rested on the seventh, gave, us as, gave that as a pattern for us. But when we say that God rested, what do we mean? Like God chilled? God put up his feet? God like ordered a drink? What, what does that mean? Well, it, it's, it's symbolic language to say that God finished his work and it was good. It was complete. He, he said it was, he, he spoke a word over it and said, this is, it, it culminates, this is, this is my culminating work here in creation. See, when we talk about our rest and God's rest, you can't compare those, can you? Because while everyone was scurrying around during the hurricane, worried, upset, powerless, feeling insufficient, what was God doing? Working. In fact, God is working right now. In fact, God has never stopped working. In fact, he's holding the whole universe together. You see where Jesus is going with this? And and the the Pharisees would have totally understood what he was getting at. See, it tells us in Colossians 1, Paul says that when God made the heavens and the earth, who was there with God? Jesus. Jesus was. In fact, was the mediator of all creation, the firstborn of all creation. He was the Father's agent for creation. And Jesus says, the Father, since that day, has been working. And guess what? I've been working. And this would not have been lost upon them at all. The fact that he called God his Father, something any Jew would not, would not intimate, what a personal intimate. It's not just our Father. He, he, he is my Father. Jesus says... As he's been working, I've been working. Here's what I want us to see from this text as we close this. In what way is Jesus still working now in your life and in my life? You see, even after God rested, and Adam and Eve were living in perfect union in the garden, and they fell into sin... Something happened at that point when sin entered the world. God had been working, but from that point on, he began working in a different way. He said, you know what? Even sin has contaminated your life. Even though sin has contaminated the world, I've still got work to do. And the work that I've got to do is I'm going to send my son. And he is going to redeem mankind. And he is going to die on a cross. And that Jesus, this morning, Four Oaks, is still working for you. He is at the right hand of the Father, interceding 
on your behalf. He is our Lord. He is not a, he's not a way back then, 2,000 years ago, died on the cross kind of Lord. He is a Lord here and now. And that's what he says to you. My Father is working, and I am still working for you. Paul says it like this in Philippians 1. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. When God asks you, do you want to be healed? What do you say? What comes to mind? And whatever that is, God wants us to bring that to him. Because he's Lord of our bodies. He's Lord of our lives. But remember, Christian, he wants to do something even more important. And that's a work of grace in your soul. And because he's Lord of the, of the Sabbath, because he's Lord of the Scriptures, he's continuing that work in you. And sometime, sometimes his greatest helpings of grace come through the most difficult of seasons. Let's pray as we come to the table this morning that God will not only fix those things, we pray that he does, but that he gives us more of himself and heals our souls.